Well, friends, it is 3.30, and to honor your promptness, I want to begin on time. Uh, my name is Ligon Duncan, and I get to uh, maybe introduce some of you, uh, maybe uh, help some others of you get to know better uh, Samuel Rutherford, who was a faithful Scottish pastor and is often reckoned one of the two greatest theologians in Scottish Protestant history. Uh, He is buried uh, next to uh, the other man who's considered one of the two greatest Protestant theologians in the history of Scotland, and you can still see the tombstones in the ruins of the St. Andrew's Cathedral in Scotland. And I came to know Rutherford, I think, during my time in seminary. Uh, I had a professor named David B. Calhoun, who was a wonderful church historian. By the way, anything you get your hands on by David Calhoun, he loved John Bunyan, so he's written a wonderful book on John Bunyan. And um, he uh, has written a wonderful uh, two-volume history of Princeton Seminary up until 1929, when it went all unbiblical and awry. Uh, David has edited wonderful devotional material uh, like the prayers of F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer was a pastor in London about the same time as C.H. Spurgeon, a little bit younger, not as good theologically as Spurgeon, but boy, are his prayers good. And so F.B. Meyer's uh, daily prayers were edited by David Calhoun. Uh, David has edited the prayers of the Scottish Psalter of 1595 that the Banner of Truth has put into print in one of its little pocket Puritan series and literally will fit down into your pocket. Rich prayers, one for every psalm. So David produced wonderful devotional material, and he taught me church history. I went to seminary already. I'd studied history as an undergraduate, so I loved history. And my father had taken me to Scotland when I was 10 years old um, because of my family's heritage and genealogy. The first Duncan came to South Carolina from Aberdeen before South Carolina was even an English colony. And so there have been Duncans in South Carolina since uh, before the city of Charleston was founded in 1670. Uh, And then another side of his family had come over from Scotland later. So just because of genealogy and family history, I had always been interested in Scotland. But boy, as a 10-year-old boy, being able to see those things for myself, I was just on fire for Scottish history. And so uh, David Calhoun uh, introduced me to this whole world of history and theology that, um, that I, had, I, I don't think had ever appreciated and appropriated uh, before. And Samuel Rutherford was one of the people that he introduced me to. And so he's like an old friend to me, and I want to introduce him to some of you and, and then help others of you get to know him better. But we should begin with prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these pastors and elders of the church who love you, who love your word, who want to build up the saints and equip them for the work of service and want to call the lost to faith in Christ. Keep them close to yourself. Encourage them. Keep them faithful to your word. Keep them from discouragement. And in what we learn of Rutherford's life today, especially, Lord, I want these brothers to be uh, emboldened so that the hard things that they face in life and ministry will not cause them to lose faith in your providence and in your ultimate victory in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that even as we study a faithful minister from many centuries past, that uh, all the glory will go to Christ and that we will be encouraged to be faithful to Christ in our ministry today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. Samuel Rutherford, we think, was born in 1660, we're, uh, in 1600. We're, we're not exactly sure uh, when he was born, you know, in, in, in different parts of the country and culture, uh, dates of birth were uh, more loosely uh, kept track of. So we think he was born about 1600. 
So he lived from 1600 to 1661. So he, he covers a good patch of the 17th century in Scotland. And the 17th century in Scotland is the century that is referred to in Scottish Presbyterian church history as the century of the Second Reformation. Now, why? Well, the gospel, um, in, uh, in, in, in the sense of a clear declaration of justification by grace rooted in scriptural exposition, had come to Scotland through Wycliffe and the Lollards before the Reformation hit England and Scotland many years later. In fact, interestingly, the area where Rutherford grew up and later ministered uh, was an area where the Lollards uh, had been very active and had uh, preached justification by grace. Uh, In fact, one of Rutherford's biographers tells the story that in uh, that village, uh, a, a, an old Lollard Bible was discovered uh, many years ago, uh, providing further evidence of the influence of these faithful biblical doctrines being heralded in that region long before the Reformation came to Scotland. But many of you will know that Luther's teaching on justification by faith came to Scotland via a a young man of a very important family in Scotland. The Hamilton family is a very important family in Scottish history. And Patrick Hamilton, as as a young man, went off to Germany and studied in Wittenberg with a New Testament scholar named Martin Luther. And he came back to Scotland in uh, 1528 with just on fire for this declaration of justification by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And uh, he was actually burned at the stake because of that. Even though he was a a nobleman, even though he was of a very important family line, he fell foul of the Roman Catholic authorities, and he was burned at the stake right outside of St. Salvator's Church in uh, St. Andrews, Scotland. In fact, if you go to St. Andrews today, there's, there's in, 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 the, in the brick, in the ground, there's a little circle with P-H that marks the spot where Patrick Hamilton was burned at the stake. And it was said in that time that as his ashes went up into the air, that with his ashes, the, the, the heresy of Lutheranism was spread all across Scotland. So before the Reformed faith came to Scotland, Lutheranism was being proclaimed through Patrick Hamilton and others. Not long after Hamilton, George Wishart uh, began to proclaim the gospel up and down the land in Scotland, and he had a young apprentice who would literally stand in front of him while he preached holding a broadsword. Uh, lest someone attempt to attack the preacher. And that young apprentice was named John Knox. <laughs> and uh, John Knox, and, and, and again, John Knox watched George Wishart be arrested and thrown in prison and then be burned at the stake in St. Andrews. Wishart was burned at the stake right outside of St. Andrews Castle uh, in uh, in St. Andrews. And again, if you go to St. Andrews in the ground outside the, the castle, there will be a GW in the bricks in the pavement marking the spot where George Wishart was burned at the stake. Well, John Knox, you may know, was eventually um, in the castle with a group of Protestant um, rebels, those who were rebelling against the Roman Catholic authorities who eventually lost to their Roman Catholic opponents and Knox was put on a slave galley and actually uh, was on a, a French slave galley for something like 18 months uh, and then was finally let ashore in, uh, in France somewhere. Well, Knox, as you know, ends up uh, making his way all the way to Geneva. He, he sees the Reformation that has been being carried on in uh, Geneva for a couple of decades by uh, John Calvin and 
um, uh, the, 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 the reformed leaders there in Geneva. And eventually, John Knox comes back to Scotland to foster the Reformation. And in 1560, John Knox and, and five other men named John sit down in the Magdalen Chapel in Edinburgh in the Cowgate, and they write in less than three days the Scots Confession of Faith. By the way, if you've never read the Scots Confession, you just read it sometime and just be blessed. One of the things you will love about it is that they, they say, if anyone can show that we are wrong about what we say from Scripture, we'll change what we've written here. Show it to us from Scripture, and we'll change what we've written. It's a beautiful statement of Reformed theology, but an absolute fidelity to God's Word. And, and they, they just make it very clear. What we're wanting to do here is be faithful to what God has said in His Word. And uh, John Knox's work launches the Reformation in Scotland. That's the first Reformation in Scotland. Up until that point, Scotland had been an officially Roman Catholic country for many, many centuries. In fact, Scotland considered itself more loyal to Rome than England. And of course, Scotland stayed more loyal to Rome uh, than England. Uh, Under Henry VIII, uh, Henry broke off from the Roman Catholic Church and formed essentially an English Catholic Church that accidentally became Protestant. Uh, The Scots deliberately rebelled against the Roman Catholic Church theologically and wanted to establish a Reformed Protestant church. And that's what Knox was involved in. And really, from 1560 to 1572, that's what Knox was about. He was about establishing this Protestant Reformation with, with you know, basically emphasizing what we today would call the solus, uh, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christo. Um, and uh, he, he attempted to uh, renovate Scotland, not only through establishing faithful preaching, but also through establishing schools. Uh, you know, the Protestant idea is people need to read because they need to read their Bibles. And therefore, schools were established near every parish church in Scotland. Why? Because people need to read their Bibles. Uh, they were very aggressive in wanting to catechize uh, Scots. And so early on, long before the Westminster Shorter Catechism and other later catechisms came along, the Scots were, were working on writing catechisms and catechizing uh, their young people so that they really understood the faith. Well, this, this is the first Reformation in Scotland. But Knox, of course, dies in 1572, and things are not all rosy. You know, I think a lot of people think, well, Scotland is a Presbyterian country. Well, as, as you heard Sinclair Ferguson this afternoon, not anymore, very sadly. I, I lived in Scotland from 1987 to 1991, and even then, there was a marked difference in Scotland from the 1970s. My older colleague, Doug Kelly, had studied at the University of Edinburgh in the 1970s, and the, the Bible-believing churches were much bigger and much fuller in the 1970s, even by the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s, that had diminished. And, and now there's been even further secularization. Scotland is more secular than the Pacific Northwest or New England here in the United States. Uh, there was a time when out of Britain, Northern Ireland would have been the most church. That's probably still true for Bible-believing Protestants. Then Scotland uh, then England, and of course, Southern Ireland is, is predominantly uh, Roman Catholic. But uh, Scotland has secularized at a, a dramatic and discouraging rate. And that's really something that you can trace from the late 19th century uh, into the earliest 20th century to now. So, you know, we, we, but, but those of us who read church history, we think of, okay, Scotland is a Presbyterian church country because we're thinking 19th century, you know, Thomas Chalmers and, and uh, Robert Murray McChain and the Bonar brothers and, and the great uh, Scottish evangelicals and the Scottish revivals of the 19th century. Or we think of the 18th century or the 17th century or Knox in the 16th century. But Presbyterianism was actually in a very precarious position in Scotland when Knox died and stayed in a precarious position with the government well into 
uh, the 17th century. In fact, it's, it's not until 1688, 1689, 1690 that Presbyterians can, can take a good long breath uh, because of the persecution that's going on. Uh, yes, their persecution of Presbyterians in Scotland. That's the age in which Rutherford is born. Rutherford is born, again, roughly the year 1600. Now, you, you need to know that about at, at 1600, who's reigning in England? <coughs> Still Elizabeth I, okay? Uh, daughter of Henry VIII. But in just a matter of a few years, James VI of Scotland is going to become James I of England. Now, James VI is Mary, Queen of Scots' son. Okay, so she, he's the son of a Catholic monarch who had been the great antagonist of John Knox during uh, his life and ministry. And James had been reared and educated under the tutelage of Presbyterian teachers. Uh, one of them was, was reputed to be the greatest Latinist in um, Scotland, Gillespie. Uh, and he was one who was involved in educating King James. So King James was an enormously educated man, but he hated Presbyterianism. Um, and he, he hated Presbyterianism for a variety of reasons. I'm, I'm sure in part of it was he associated Presbyterianism with the death of his mother, even though it was Elizabeth who actually signed the warrant for his mother's death. Um, I think he, he probably hated Presbyterianism because he strongly believed that if you did not have Episcopalian church government, it called into question the authority of the monarch. You know, the idea was if you have elected pastors, pastors elected by their own congregations and elders elected by their congregation that God appoints in a plurality to give uh, rule and leadership and to uh, feed the flock, that suggests that there is no need for an absolute monarch. And so he, he is famous for saying to his son, Charles I, no bishop, no king. In other words, for him, the battle over church government wasn't about understanding what the text of Scripture says. It was all about the authority of the secular monarch or the, the, the governmental monarch. He, he wanted a bishop in church life who was in complete authority to parallel the complete authority of the king. And so uh, though James had been educated by Presbyterians, he didn't like Presbyterians. And so that's the world that Samuel Rutherford is born into. He's born into a little town called Nisbet, um, and uh, a, a little village under a really faithful Scottish pastor named David Calderwood. And um, for, for those of you who are sort of historical and theological nerds like me, Calderwood wrote a, a very important history of the Church of Scotland during this period of time. And so it, it would be like Samuel Rutherford uh, being born into a time of evangelical malaise under a faithful pastor like John MacArthur, as opposed to the wishy-washy, you know, multitudes that sort of proliferate in the land. So that if if I could if I can make that parallel or that analogy, he's he's born under a fire-breathing, Bible-believing, Jesus-proclaiming pastor who really cares about doctrine and who really cares about biblical polity. And so no doubt that has a big impact on, on Rutherford. Um, he's there until he's 16, 17 years old. He's obviously a bright child. We really don't know what Rutherford's dad did. There, there, there are actually debates by the historians as to you know, what was his dad's rank in society. Some people say he was a farmer. Uh, some people say he was a miller. Uh, you know, someone who who ground grains at the at the local mill and stuff. We don't really know what his dad did, but we know we do know this: he must have been a bright boy because he ended up at the University of Edinburgh, and 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 just get what he had to do to get in. Um, apparently, 
He walked to school as a teenage boy several miles to Jedburgh. Now, Jedburgh is a a little uh, town south of Edinburgh, and it had an ancient abbey in it. It's, it's, in fact, the ruins of the abbey are still there. I've been there many, many times. But in the ruins of that abbey, there was a, there was a local school, and he was educated there and uh, did very well, was invited to the university to sit entrance exams, which he had to do entirely in Latin. In fact, everything at the university was done in Latin. Every class was given in Latin. You listened in Latin, you took notes in Latin, and while you were a student there, you were not even allowed to speak Scots. Now, Scots is an, it's a dialect of English, and it was the common, it was the vulgar language of many of the people, especially in the lowlands of Scotland. In fact, all, all the way up into uh, the 20th century, you could hear Scots English in a lot of places. When I was at the University of Edinburgh in Milne's Court, the, one of the bursars in Milne's Court spoke broad Scots. And I, I just, I was, I was absolutely transfixed by listening. I mean, almost in some ways, it sounds like an entirely different language. And, you know, in other ways, it sounds like listening to Elizabethan English. And, and uh, so, I, you know, it, that, that was a very common dialect in uh, Rutherford's day. But the students were not allowed to speak it. They were required to speak Latin. Uh, and so they, their, their conversation in classroom and outside of the classroom was, was meant to be in Latin because they were going to be made scholars. Well, Rutherford did very well, and uh, he, he went through university with distinction, with enough distinction that he was eventually asked, even as a very young man, to teach humanities at the University of Edinburgh. So he, here, here's a, a Scottish boy from a small village with powerful intellect, who grew up under a faithful pastor, who goes off to the big university, and he does well. Now, um, all along, Rutherford is preparing for ministry in the Scottish church. But if, if if I can paint the situation right now, when James VI becomes the king of England, he not only gets into a controversy with a group known as the Puritans in England, he increases his controversy with the Presbyterians at Scotland. Um, Many of you have studied the Puritans. My, My own theory on the Puritans is that Puritans existed from 1562 to 1662. And there are all sorts of theories on the Puritans. You know, you'll hear people say, you know, Spurgeon's the last Puritan or Martin Lloyd-Jones is the last Puritan. My view is Puritanism exists from 1562 to 1662, from the act of supremacy to the act of conformity. Um, in other words, Puritanism in England was, um, was representative of a group of people in the Church of England who wanted to see the Church of England become a more consistently Reformed and Protestant church. And it really started because during Elizabeth's reign, though she was a Protestant, she favored what we would today call high church Anglicanism. Um, And uh, the evangelical men in the Anglican communion of her day, the men of the doctrinal and piety spirit of Thomas Cranmer and those successors, um, they felt like, boy, there is a lot of reform that needs to happen in in the Church of England. And uh, when James became the king, they were initially kind of encouraged because this man had been educated by Scottish Presbyterians. And so in 1604, 1605, there was actually a big meeting with him at, uh, at, the, at the palace of Hampton, uh, south of London. And these Puritan ministers presented a series of petitions to him, uh, one of which, by the way, was for a new translation of the Bible. And that was the only one of their petitions that he accepted, and hence we got the King James Bible of 1611. 
That was the one good thing that came out of the Hampton Conference. Every other petition that they made, he denied. In fact, he said, if you ever ask me for those things again, I'll exile you. So he got off to a cheery uh, relationship with the, with the Puritans in England. But while he was getting on bad, badly with them in England, he was also getting bad, on badly uh, in Scotland. In fact, in the early 1600s, he reimposed bishops in Scotland. Uh, you know, so as opposed to Presbyterianism, where you have a pastor and elders elected by the congregation, he reimposed uh, bishops in Scotland. And there were, there were great debates over this. Um, he also was behind what are called the Five Articles of Perth in 1618. And all of these things caused real controversy in the Scottish church by uh, the Presbyterian party, which theologically would have been very much in sympathy with the kind of things that the English Puritans were concerned about. And so Rutherford is, he's being educated and he's growing up in the middle of that kind of controversy and he's wanting to become a pastor. And that finally happens in 1627. He is called to a little church in Anwath, A-N-W-O-T-H, which is way down in the southwest of Scotland near the Solway Firth. Um. And, and I mean tiny little church. I, so I, I was reading a, 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 an academic uh, PhD this afternoon about uh, Rutherford because I wanted to double-check my facts on a few issues. You know, you, you, you read older biographers and they can take liberties on certain things. I wanted to sort of read the latest on it. And the, the, the guy says that the church could have held 200. Well, I've, I've stood in the church. If that church could have held 200, then there would have been no space for anybody to breathe. Okay, I'd, I'd say 80 max. It's a, it's a small little village church. And Rutherford, now this, this is a guy who had taught humanities at the University of Edinburgh, lectured in Latin, spoken in Latin, already recognized as one of the up-and-coming scholars of the time. He loved ministering in that little rural parish church. He loved it. Um, in fact, one of his, um, one of his earlier uh, biographers uh, tells us, and, and this you'll find this, by the way, if you ever run across the book by Thomas McCree called The Story of the Scottish Church, it'd be an edifying thing for you to, to read. But Thomas McCree records this contemporary pastor describing the ministry of Samuel Rutherford in Anwath, and here's how he describes it. I have known many great and good ministers in this church, but for such a piece of clay as Mr. Rutherford, I never knew one in Scotland like him, to whom so many great gifts were given. For he seemed to be altogether taken up with everything good and excellent and useful. He seemed to be always praying, always preaching, always visiting the sick, always catechizing, always writing, always studying. Many times I thought that he would have flown out of the pulpit when he came to speak of Jesus Christ. He was never in his right element, but when he was commending Jesus, he would have fallen asleep in bed speaking of Christ. And if you've ever read any of Rutherford's letters, you understand that that statement about his love for speaking about Christ is not an exaggeration. This is a man who was passionately in love with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he ministers from... Uh, 1627 to about 1636 in Anwath. So just short of 10 years in this little, um, in this little church. And, and let me tell you that the, the, um, the, the physical situation that he was in, he, he, he writes letters about this. Um, th- there were leaks in the roof. And um, he, he couldn't get the people to give enough to fix the, the leaks in the roof in this little building. So when, you know, when you're ever discouraged 
about the situation in your local congregation. Just remember, and there's, there's Samuel Rutherford preaching in a very simple little wooden pulpit, simple little wooden communion table, and, and the roof is leaking around him as, as he preaches the gospel to these folks. So don't, you know, again, I, I just love the picture that you, you, want a, you want a towering intellectual hero who's a small church pastor. Samuel Rutherford's your guy. Um, and and he, he loves this congregation. And there's some wonderful stories. Um, maybe, maybe my favorite story from these years in Anwath, my, my, favorite, let me, my, my favorite heartwarming story, there are many favorite heart-rending stories from this period because this man bled and died with his congregation. His first wife died. Euphem Hamilton, she was from, we we're pretty sure, the famous part of the Hamilton family. She died after 13 months of excruciating pain. Uh, he, he, in fact, he said he did not sleep for 13 months because she was crying out in pain. And I, I wonder whether it was some kind of cancer that they wouldn't have known how to diagnose, and it was just in the process of taking her apart on the inside. And back in those days, they didn't have anything that you could palliate the pain with. And, you know, she just dies this horrible death and he doesn't sleep. Then he's laid up for three months with some sort of a fever and thinks he might die. Their children die. Uh, so, you know, uh, he, he buries so many. I mean, you just think of the child mortality in those days. Uh, so he's deeply acquainted with grief. But one of my happy stories from that time is the story on one occasion, James Usher came to visit him. Now, James Usher was the bishop of Armagh in Ireland, and he was reformed. He was a reformed Protestant. In fact, Richard Muller, the great historian of the, of the Protestant post-Reformation era, reckons that Bishop Usher's Irish articles had more influence on the Westminster Confession of Faith and then through the Westminster Confession on the uh, London Baptist Confession of 1689 than even the 39 Articles of the Church of England written by Thomas Cranmer. So Usher apparently comes to Anwath because he wants to hear Rutherford preach, but he disguises himself. And he knocks on the, on the, on the manse door on a Saturday night, and he asks if he can spend the night. And he's welcomed in and uh, they have the family meal, and then they prepare to catechize the children. And so as they're going around the table catechizing the children, Rutherford turns to the stranger, and he says, how many commandments are there? And the stranger says, 11, sir. And Rutherford says, no, 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 man, you must be poorly taught. It's 10, 11, sir, 11. Well, Rutherford thought, I've got some work to do on this fellow. The next day as he got up to preach, uh, he, there, there was a favorite bush that he liked to go to and pray in before he would go into the pulpit and preach. And as he got over towards that bush, he heard another man praying in the bushes. It was the stranger who was visiting. And the, the prayer was an overflowing, scripture-filled prayer, urging that God would bless the ministry of the word in the church that day and the people's ears and hearts would be opened. And Rutherford peered in, and it was just, the stranger was praying the prayer. And he said, sir, you must be a minister. Yes, yes, I am. What is your name? James Usher. Archbishop Usher? yes. Would you please preach the word this morning here in Anwath? Usher gets up to preach that morning, and his text, a new commandment I give unto you, <laughs> that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And Rutherford thought, ah, oh, the 11th commandment. So it's one of my favorite stories. From the, there, there are all sorts of wonderful stories from, from Rutherford's early life. I think that's my favorite story from from, us, us, from um, Rutherford's early life. Well, things are getting worse in the 1620s and the 1630s because now no longer is James the sixth and first the king of England and Scotland. Charles the first is now the king, and he has a policy in the church which he calls thorough. 
That is, he wants thorough control of the church in Scotland and in England under the power of the bishops and under the influence of the wicked, and I mean wicked, Archbishop of Canterbury, one of the most despicable human beings to ever live, William Laud. And there is an attempt to impose a new prayer book in Scotland. Now, many of us today will use the the old um, Church of England Book of Common Prayer and find it very helpful. Many of the prayers and colics and scripture readings is very, very helpful for personal devotion. But in those days, the Puritans in England and the Presbyterians in Scotland did not want a prayer book imposed upon the church because there was no warrant for such imposition in Scripture. And so this was a big deal issue. And in the 1530s, real controversy broke out in Scotland, and Samuel Rutherford had made his opinions known about this. And so when Charles's ecclesiastical uh, officials were in control, in Scotland, Rutherford was exiled from Anwath to the city of Aberdeen. And uh, it just about broke his heart uh, because he genuinely loved his congregation and he was exiled. You, mean, you, could, in those, you, you couldn't have gotten much further away in Scotland than going from the Anwath in the, near the Solway in the southwest all the way up to Aberdeen in the northeast. And he was there for two or so years in Aberdeen. Not in prison, but under house arrest and not allowed to leave the city limits of Aberdeen. <coughs> and worse, not allowed to preach. And, and he, he talks about his dumb Sabbaths, the, the days where he could not open his mouth for Christ. And he just says, they just about killed me not being able to get up and preach on the Lord's Day and proclaim Christ. But it's from Aberdeen that he writes most of his wonderful letters that we still have today. And John Rawlinson from the Banner of Truth, who's here, by the way, get by the banner table while you're here, he's very kindly brought me three of the Rutherford books that they do have available, not in huge quantities, but in some quantities at the book room. This is the larger edition of uh, Rutherford's letters with Andrew Boner's introduction. And again, Boner's introduction is worth the price of the book. He'll give you some biography. He'll give you some history. He'll give you some background. And, um, but Rutherford's letters are amazing. C.H. Spurgeon said, let this forever be known to be the testimony of C.H. Spurgeon that among the uninspired writings of men, I know nothing closer to inspiration than the letters of Mr. Samuel Rutherford. So that is no small commendation from Charles Spurgeon uh, to, to say that he found so much of Christ in these letters that it was, for him, it was, it was the closest thing in human writing that he could find uh, to Scripture, and and you'll you'll find the, the, these letters um, are soaked with a mystical love for Christ and a communion with Him. And uh, when when you find your own souls dry, I think you will find some things here to prime the pump. And it, look, we need those things. You know, when you know when when you've preached your heart out and it's falling on deaf ears when you've longed for conversions and they haven't come, when people that you've poured your life into turn away from Christ, when marriages fall apart, when all the obscene things that you face in ministry happen, you need something sometimes to just get your hope back again. And of course, we go to Scripture first and foremost, and we go to God in prayer. But sometimes, you know what? Sometimes you're so low that you can't even... (laughs) You can't even get your mouth to open up and pray prayers to God. And, and, you, and, and, and it's, it's almost like your eyes fall over the page of Scripture over and over again, and, and they're not taking in what they ought to be taking in. This is a really good thing to go to to just prime the pump a little bit. But frankly, because you, you'll find half of these letters are about his love for Christ and Christ's love for him. But half of the letters are about how discouraged he is. 
So it's, it's perfect for a minister, right? <laughs> you're excited about Christ and you're discouraged. <laughs> you know, welcome to ministry. And uh, so it's, you know, it's just the minister's companion. Uh, now, the banner also produced a shorter edition of those letters. So if you just want to dip your toe in, you could start with the Puritan paperback uh, version of the letters of Samuel Rutherford. And then this is a book that Sinclair Ferguson has been recommending for years. And it's just little snippets out of the writings of Samuel Rutherford. Um, and it's, it's a little booklet called The Loveliness of Christ. And um, it is solid gold. Let, let, me, let me just give you a taste of this. If your Lord call you to suffering, be not dismayed. There shall be a new allowance of the king for you when you come to it. One of the softest pillows Christ has is laid under his witness's head, though often they must set down their bare feet among thorns." Here's another one. I hope to overhope and overbelieve my troubles. Okay, I'm just, it's right there. You can go right across the tent, pick it up. And it, it, every, every single word will encourage you. It'll encourage you back to your Bible. It'll encourage you back to Jesus. It'll encourage you back to your ministry. It'll encourage you back to proclamation. You'll just, you'll recognize this is a brother who understands my discouragement. And this is a brother who knows my Jesus. And this is a friend for me to walk through the fight with. And I'm always looking for stuff to encourage ministers in the fight with, because it's a fight. Um, So uh, Rutherford, that towering intellect, I think is part of the, his just unbelievable ability to turn phrases. He, his... um, his analogies from Scripture uh, are the closest thing I find in the Presbyterian world to Spurgeon in Morning and Evening and Faith Checkbook. And you know how Spurgeon just had that devotional tone and, and capacity to his speaking and to his writing. Rutherford's just like that. And I think, I think that's one reason why Spurgeon resonated with Rutherford. He looked back across two centuries and he said, I understand that guy. You know, I, I think like that guy thinks. And uh, so if you like those devotional works by Spurgeon, chances are you're going to be really helped um, by Rutherford. Now, so Rutherford is in Aberdeen. He's under house arrest. He can't preach. He, uh, he writes these wonderful letters to his congregation. Um, and, you know, he, he's, he, he's got, um, he, he's remarried by this time. He, he remarried. Um, four or five years after his first wife died. And, um, but here's the thing, Rutherford is gonna lose all but one of his children. He is going to predecease all but one of his children. And um, I think that his loss of his first wife, the loss of what, maybe six or seven children, we don't know exactly how many, but six or seven children, with only one, Agnes was her name, was the only one who lived beyond him. Um, I think that tenderized the man. You know, I mean, I, ju- I just do. I-, I think, you know, you know when somebody understands your pain. And I think Rutherford's people knew that he understood their pain. You listen to him write to Lady Kenmure, uh, the-, the wife of Viscount Gordon. Um, and when she has lost her third child. And um, you, can, you, you can tell that as Spurgeon said, this man is no dry land sailor. He, he knows what he's speaking about. He, he said, there's this seraphic letter he writes to her. He says, woman, I tell you that when you are got up thither, you will say four and 20 hours in this place is worth 
threescore years and ten sorrow upon earth. So he's, he's always thinking of heaven. He's, he's always thinking of heaven. So the, the, the letters are filled with Christ, and they're filled with heaven, and they're filled with hope. And they're ministering to people in enormous loss and pain. Um, and he's calling them to Christ, and he's calling them to faithfulness to the Scripture. And I, I just think you'll be greatly encouraged by that. Well, while he's in St. Andrews, something extraordinary happens in Scotland. Um, the National Covenant of 1638 is signed in the Greyfriars Churchyard in Edinburgh. I lived in Edinburgh for four years, and one of the things that used to frustrate me is that all the tourist buses would come by Greyfriars Churchyard, and they would get out, and they'd have their cameras, and they would be taking pictures of Greyfriars Bobby, a dog. And if you don't know that story, it's a cute story. It's a great story. I love, I love dogs. I love Greyfriars Bobby. But that's for me, that's not what's so precious about Greyfriars Kirkyard. What's so precious to me about Greyfriars Kirkyard is, first of all, that is the place where the bodies of 300 Presbyterian covenanters who died for Jesus and the gospel were buried in a common grave. And that is the churchyard where Alexander Henderson's National Covenant of 1638 was signed by some people in blood where, where they pledged their lives and their fortunes to Christ's crown and covenant in Scotland. And so Rutherford's in exile when that gets signed. And when that happens, he's free. And the, the second reformation is in full steam in Scotland. And really, from 1638 to 1688, you're in the covenanting times in Scotland. Now, by the way, Daniel Defoe, the author of Robinson Crusoe, went north from England to Scotland to interview survivors of the covenanting times and actually wrote a history of it. Um, we think that something like 20,000 Scottish Presbyterians died during those years. I think a lot of people don't realize there's that extensive persecution of Protestants in the 17th century in Scotland, but there was. And so this is the time that Rutherford's living. Uh, Rutherford goes back to Anwath. He is back with his congregation. He is so excited. And then he gets a call from the Presbytery of Edinburgh. And they say, you, we, we cannot spare you to a rural parish. You have got to be a professor in the divinity schools of the Church of Scotland because you've got to pour your lives into other ministers who will be like you. And it just about kills him. He protests. He says, please, 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 let me stay in Anwa. Now, just think of this. This is the academic scholar of the land, and he wants to pastor 80 people in, in just in the middle of nowhere. Oh, for more pastors like that, okay? Oh, for more pastors like that. He goes back. He eventually becomes a professor of uh, divinity uh, in St. Andrews and is, is preparing uh, students for the pastoral ministry. In 1643, the Solemn League and Covenant is passed in Scotland where the Scottish Presbyterians unite with the desires of the English Puritans to... Uh, foster reformation in the churches in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government throughout uh, the, the, the United Kingdom, uh, throughout Great Britain. And uh, Rutherford is one of the Scottish commissioners to go to the Westminster Assembly in London. In fact, we have in the Edinburgh University Library, there is in longhand a catechism that uh, Samuel Rutherford wrote himself which looks strangely like the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So there's no telling how much influence Rutherford had on the writing of the Shorter Catechism. So he's, he's there ministering. Um, he and he's, he, his wife goes with him to London. They, they lose more children. They have more children and lose more children while he's involved in that work. After the days of the Westminster Assembly, uh, he goes back to Scotland, but it's a, it's a hard, hard time. 
and and there are many battles with the government. The the government is seeking to impose its will on the church. And through Charles II now, who has been crowned king in Scotland and then eventually comes back to Scotland acting as king in 1660, um, his agents in Scotland are really battling against the Presbyterian cause. And Rutherford spends really the last part of his life um, in controversy and really in discouragement, real discouragement about the future of the Protestant cause in Scotland. In 1660, he had written a book when he was a young man with a Latin title, Lex Rex. Now, that does not sound very exciting to us. You, you, you know enough Latin to know that Lex means law, and rex means king. But you see, in, in, in Rutherford's day, rex lex was what was being taught by the king and his supporters. That is, the king is law. What the king says is law is law. The king is above the law. The law itself is the king's law. Rex Lex is the rule of land. He wrote a book as a young man called Lex Rex. You see what he's saying? No, no, no. The king is not above the law. Law is king. And for that, he was summoned to Edinburgh as an old man, 60 years old. Now, he knew that his life was in danger. And um, many of his colleagues in the Scottish Reformation would end up being martyred. They would end up being um, killed, hung, burned at the stake. And um, Rutherford was summoned to Edinburgh, and uh, but he fell ill. And uh, he died before he had to be uh, appear before the king's tribunal. And um, one of the last things that he said was, um, I am soon to go to a place where few kings and great folk go. His last words, we think, there are are all sorts of of sayings from his deathbed. We think his last words were glory, glory dwells or shines in Emmanuel's land. You may be familiar with that phrase because it's found in Anne Cousins' hymn, Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land, which is based on Rutherford's verse. In fact, the Banner of Truth a number of years ago published a book by Faith Cook um, called Grace in Winter, The Letters of Rutherford in Verse. Uh, One of uh, Rutherford's uh, biographers, it may have been Andrew Bonar, once said, it would not take much to turn Rutherford's prose to poetry. And so Faith Cook thought about that, and she said, I think I'll give that a whirl. She's a pastor's wife uh, in Hull, England. And um, so she she took some of the letters of Rutherford and turned them into verse. By the way, if you, again, if you're looking for a devotional uh, piece, what a wonderful, wonderful piece. Um, and um, so true. Uh, but again, Emmanuel's land comes from uh, in part, the last words of Rutherford, and then from uh, some other parts of his writings. It'd be well worth you reading. In, in the final minutes that we have together, what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, share with you just a few great quotes from Rutherford to whet your appetite, just like the ones we read from The Loveliness of Christ. Here's one. Believe God's word and power more than you believe your own feelings and experiences. Your rock is Christ. It is not the rock which ebbs and flows, but your sea. The rock is solid. Not ebbing, the sea is ebbing and flowing around the rock. Rock's right there. And I've often wondered if he had in mind bass rock. Just, just if you go out in the Firth of Forth, the, the 
big body of water just north of Edinburgh. Bass Rock is where many of the Covenanters were imprisoned. It is a big rock out in the middle of the fort, and it isn't going anywhere. It's right there. And the Firth may ebb and flow, but the Bass Rock is right there. Beautiful picture of Christ. The sea ebbs and flows, but Christ does not. Your rock is Christ. Then here's one of my favorite Rutherford sayings. Whenever I find myself in the cellar of affliction, I always find his choicest wines. You know, the Lord puts me in the cellar of his afflictions, but he's got sweet things waiting for me there. If your Lord calls you to suffering, do not be dismayed, for he will provide a deeper portion of Christ in your suffering. That reminds me a little bit of um, Corey Tim Boom's famous words, there is no well so deep that God is not yet deeper still. And um, you will find a deeper portion of Christ in your suffering. The softest pillow will be placed under your head, though you must set your bare feet among the thorns. You, You got a little taste of that in the loveliness of Christ reading. Do not be afraid at suffering for Christ for he has a sweet peace for a sufferer. God has called you to Christ's side. And if the wind is now in his face, you cannot expect to rest on the sheltered side of the hill. You get what he's saying? If you're walking with Christ and the culture is against Christ, you need to do what? Expect that the culture will be against you because you're walking with Christ. It's not because you're doing something wrong. It's because you're doing something right. That's why they hate you. You're walking with your Savior, and the wind's blowing against him. Walk with him. Don't be surprised by it. You cannot be above your master who received many an innocent stroke. The greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials. Oh, the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials. A pool of standing water will turn stagnant. Faith grows more with the sharp winter storm in its face. This this is one of his most famous sayings, grace grows best in winter. Grace grows best with a sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. By the way, this is a, this is a big theme in, in Spurgeon, isn't it? You know, Spurgeon will say, there is no trial like prosperity, Spurgeon says. You know, adversity is hard, but prosperity is harder. <laughs> and and that's what that's what Rutherford is saying here. Um, you cannot sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. Crosses form us into his image. They cut away the pieces of our corruption. Lord, cut, carve, wound. Lord, do anything to perfect your image in us and make us fit for glory. We need winnowing before we enter the kingdom of God. Oh, what I owe to the file, hammer, and furnace. Again, it reminds you of, of Luther. Prayer, meditation, and trials make the minister, Luther said. Uh, Elsewhere in his introduction to Psalm 5, Luther said, a minister is not made by reading books, but by living, dying, and being damned. 
Now, Luther had a provocative way of saying things. But you know what he's saying? He's saying that ministers are made in the crucible. That's where God makes you. So Rutherford is saying, Oh, what I owe to the file, the hammer, and the furnace. Why should I be surprised at the plow that makes such deep furrows in my soul? Whatever direction the wind blows, it will blow us to the Lord. His hand will direct us safely to the heavenly shore to find the weight of eternal glory. As we look back to our pains and suffering, we shall see that suffering is not worthy to be compared to our first night's welcome home in heaven. If we could smell of heaven and our country above, our crosses would not bite us. Lay all your loads by faith on Christ. Ease yourself and let him bear all. He can, he does, he will bear you. Whether God comes with a rod or a crown, he comes with himself. Have courage, I am your salvation. Welcome, welcome, Jesus. That's why he would often say in his own trials, I hang by a thread, but it is of Christ's spinning. Christ made the thread. I'm okay. So again, I I, I commend Rutherford to you as a fellow pastor who will encourage your souls in gospel ministry. Thank you so much for your attention today. I'll hang around and answer questions if you want later. God bless you all.